Easy Monday. We call this one the human catapult. The rat pit. The water torture cell. You will be up there. You're going to jump from the 12th floor. You'll be covered by two dozen snakes. Six young people will compete against their fears and against each other. I think she might start to cry. Fear Factor World Premiere at NBC Monday. If you want, you can come back in. Shut up, Joe! Oh, Fear Factor, man, that was a classic. I remember when that came on and I was like, oh, I could do that part, I could do that part, like the adventuresome part. It was always like in three parts where you had to do some kind of like daring stunt and then you always had to kind of eat something kind of weird. And then the part that just got me is like, there's just certain things that I'm afraid of, as I've told you kind of before, things that I just don't care for, like snakes, spiders don't bother us me as much, bananas, I mean, those are terrifying. And so it's just one of those things of where we just realize uh, that there are things that we are afraid of and if we're we're not careful, sometimes we take the bite out of the truth that Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That sometimes what we want to do, and this is not a bad thing, but sometimes what we do is we talk about just, and this is not bad, the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness, the love of God, and that is so, so true. But we also have to understand that anytime that individuals came into contact, not just with the presence of God, but his messengers, they were always not just fearful in the sense of awe and respect, they were terrified to the core of their being that this majestic holy being was speaking to them. And it, 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 there was fear that actually captured them for, for a moment. And each time that messenger of the Lord, not the Lord himself, the messenger of the Lord is saying, do not be afraid. Fear is appropriate because we're... <laughs> The presence of the one that I've been in, and I'm just kind of uh, absorbing his holiness and his grandeur, uh, and I'm, that's being displayed to you, that's going to be a terrifying thing. And so this morning, my hope is that we, wouldn't, um, that we wouldn't step away from the fact that our God is awesome, and there are passages that talk about how our God is terrifying and awful. And I don't mean awful in the negative sense, but full of awe. And so I hope that this morning that we could gain just a bit of a proper perspective of who he is. And when that happens, though this might sound kind of contradictory or maybe kind of upside down, that when we understand and grasp the true fear of the Lord that does include respect and reverence, but also like, man, he, he is awesome and glorious, that when we capture that, nothing else will scare us. We will not fear anything else. And so... Uh, the, the warning today, as you know, Amos, the minor prophet, so much of this has been kind of a warning to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, what I, the way that I phrased it for today is, beware when you are consumed with your own security and pleasures, God's judgment will consume you. When you are consumed with your own security and pleasures, God's judgment will consume you. Let's pray. Father, I'm praying that as we come into... Um, a time to hear from you and to hear from your word, that it doesn't, um, even though it was written long ago, it's not distant to us in our current day and circumstances, that it is very relevant. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear, a mind to understand, and that we would have the will to put what you've told us today into action. And so, if you would, where you're seated right now, would you just ask God to give you the ears to hear, the mind to understand, and the will to obey? And if you would, would you pray for me that I would be able to articulate what God has said?
Well, Jesus, we come in your precious and holy name. Amen. My first point for this morning is, uh, is one that you're going to be like, man, this is some harsh, but it's good. Number one, God hates complacency. God hates complacency. Look, look, at, um, uh, look at chapter 6, verse 1. And, and as we're about to dive in, I did want to give a definition of complacency so we're all on the same page. You're not wondering, what do you mean by that? And so, Samantha, can you, can you throw that definition up there of complacency? Excellent. Um, notice, it's, I got this from Merriam-Webster. This isn't just me telling you what I think complacency is. So uh, it's, it's self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness. That's a kind of a key word unawareness of actual dangers or deficiency. And so I share that with you so that we're kind of, again, all on the same page of when we're talking about complacency, uh, this, is, this is kind of the idea that I'm talking about. And what we find is this idea of self-satisfaction, unaware, unawareness of the dangers or deficiencies that are around you because of that self-satisfaction. God hates that. And he's about to articulate why. Now look at verse 1. Amos writes, woe to those who are at Zion. Literally the word woe, as we talked about last week, is almost like this beginning of like a funeral song or a funeral funeral dirge. And what's being said is this idea of oi, woe, slow down, listen, ponder this, hear what I have to say. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. That's kind of unusual because he's, Zion's in the southern kingdom and he's in the northern kingdom prophesying. And to those who feel, here's the key word, secure in the mountain of Samaria. Well, what he's doing here is he's basically saying, I know that I'm in the northern kingdom talking to the northern kingdom about your issues, but this is not just a northern kingdom issue. This is a whole, uh, even though we're split now as a nation with the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, uh, this, is, this is a whole people of God issue. And so I'm going to talk to the heart of the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, Zion, and I'm also talking to you in the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria. And this is the thing, is you feel secure. Those in Jerusalem at Zion, you feel at ease. Life is good. Life is abundantly blessed. He's saying to the northern kingdom, those in Samaria, he's saying, you feel secure in the mountains. You, you feel like you're, you're okay. And he's saying, your complacency, your security of your feelings that you have cannot protect you from the judgment of God. He, he goes on. He says in verse 1, "...the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes." He's saying you, you have a false sense of security, and we're going to see that it has everything to do with their complacency. He goes on, verses 2 and 3. He says, here's an example of what I'm telling you guys. He says, go over to Kalna and look." And they would be like, I can't see Kalna. I'm looking, but I don't see him. Well, there's a reason for that. He says, go from there to Hamath the Great. They're like, who's Hamath? And they were great? Yeah, that's funny types. And so it's one of those moments of just like, who, who, who is that? They were great at one point? And then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Some of them probably knew their history because it wasn't that long ago. Of like, yeah, Gath. Man, they were, they were a powerful foe and enemy of ours. But where are they now? Are they better than these kingdoms, or is this territory greater than yours? Do you put off the day of calamity, and would you bring near the seat of violence? Essentially, if you could put this in kind of Stephen terms, is, hey, northern kingdom, enjoy it while it lasts. Enjoy your comfort, your ease, your pleasure while it lasts. Because here's the thing, just as uh, Kalna, Kalna, you can't find them anymore. Just as Hamath, the great, they're no longer great anymore. You don't even know who they are. And the Philistines, though they were mighty in their military, where are they now? Empires rise and fall. Kingdoms rise and fall. 
And they would have a bit of an idea when Amos is saying this of some context, some understanding of what he's saying. But we actually have the perspective of being able to look at all of world history, and we can look back over the course of world history, and we can see, man, Egypt was just rolling. Like, they were doing some incredible things. They had power. They had wealth. They were building these such immense, impressive architectural structures that they still, they still stand today. Like, it, it's impressive. But as with every kingdom, it falls and another rises. No one thought Egypt would ever fall. How could they possibly? But then here comes Assyria. Assyria is going to be that next superpower that's going to be on the scene there in the ancient Near East. And as it rises up, it's one of those powers that was kind of like flash in the pan, here today, gone tomorrow. Now, when they were here, man, they were swift, terrible, terrifying. I mean, they ruled with an iron fist. But in the grand scheme of things, their, their reign of their empire didn't last that long, but it did last. I mean, it was an incredible, incredible kingdom that they had. But then there's a power vacuum, and here comes Babylon the Great. That was the adjective given to it, the Great. And they were, they were great. Their, their, their power and their reign was, was incredible. Nebuchadnezzar, just what they were able to accomplish, the wealth that they had. But this is what happens even to Babylon the Great. In one night, you can read about this in Daniel, in one night, there's this other kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and they make their way through the walls, and in one night, Babylon the Great falls. What a mighty kingdom it was. The Medes and the Persians, they think that they're doing pretty well, they're expanding, and then all of a sudden, they come up to a bunch of city-states in Greece, and there's this military leader by the name of Alexander the Great, perhaps the greatest military leader of all world history. They didn't know what they ran into. And when Alexander the Great got cooking and got rolling for 10 years, he literally conquered pretty much the, the known world at that time, going as far off to India, some believe it even possibly into China. Like, he wanted to Hellenize the world, which was mean he wanted to make the world Greek. And so even in that day and time, even hundreds of years later, when Jesus came to this earth and was born of the Virgin Mary, the, the power and the rule and the reign of the of the uh, empire, the Hellenistic empire, was so much so that they had still adopted and used the Greek language as their language for commerce and business. That's how much of an impact that empire had, even though it was in ashes at this point. And then you had Rome rise up. And Rome was that power that no one thought was going to go away. And then it got to the point to where we can even see today some of its influences in our judicial system, our government, because of the republic that they had. Like It, it, it kind of seeped into even what we experience here in the United States. But eventually they fell as well. And then here comes Spain, and then here comes England, and here comes France, and here comes the United States. And this isn't to frighten us, but it's just to say every empire rises and every empire falls. But there is one kingdom that just continues to rise, even when we think it looks dark and bleak, because that kingdom always has a remnant, even when it's at its darkest and when it's at its bleakest. It is the kingdom of God. And even in this moment, when the northern kingdom of Israel is perverting justice and just dealing and just treating harshly those who are weak and downcast, and God is going to bring judgment, there is always a remnant of God because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and it's going to reign forever and ever and ever. And so the question is, are you a part of that kingdom? Like, I am great and proud to be an American, but I am Christian first because I have a citizenship of heaven because of my faith in Christ. Do you have that certainty that the kingdom of heaven belongs to me, not because of who I am and what I could accomplish, but because of his grace and love and mercy in my life. Let's not become complacent with that notion. 
of what kingdom you are a part of. He continues, verse 4. He says, those who recline on beds of ivory, he's starting to describe the, the, the luxury and uh, the, the lifestyle that, they, that the elite were living. He says, those who recline on beds of ivory, a bed of ivory would have been just priceless, expensive, and sprawl on their couches, their, their couch potatoes. They're just having a great old time. And they eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Yet, yet, they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles and the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. You're like, what does that mean? Essentially, it means (laughs) that the elite who are living the luxurious lifestyle of ease and comfort and just enjoying the high life, is saying that the entire kingdom, because you are the leaders, and so you are held responsible, unfortunately, the entire northern kingdom is going to experience exile and judgment, but you're going to be at the front of the pack whenever that kingdom, whenever that, the, that enemy comes in. Specifically, it's going to be Assyria. And you're going to be at the front of the line leading your way out of what you once looked at with your beds of ivory and your couches that you sprawled on, and it's going to be ash, and it's going to be smoke, and you're going to be going into a place that you don't even know where it is, let alone maybe even how to get back. The fear of the Lord is a terrifying thing. Sometimes we come to the Lord and we come in a trivial manner of, God, I messed up, just forgive me. You're gracious, just forgive me. Remember just a few weeks ago, uh, we were studying of how, uh, I believe it was chapter, uh, might have been something else that I was studying, might have been Song of Solomon, but we don't presume on the grace of God. When we get to a point where we're like, I am saved, and I do have salvation, good for me, like, I'm, 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 so, I'm so good, God, I'm so lovable. If not for God, what we deserve is his judgment and his wrath and separation for him from him for eternity. But because he is loving and good, and because he is gracious and kind, and he does desire that we would repent as we've studied at the pinnacle of Amos chapter 5, that we would seek him and live. But let us not presume upon the grace of God. He goes on, uh, in, or as he says in verses 4 through 7, Another way that I kind of put this is so often our ease and our comforts blind us from seeing the economic struggles or the injustices that the rest of the world is experiencing, and not just in the world, but maybe even down the street. We're blind to see the people that are around us because we're blinded by our comfort and our ease. It's easy for us uh, to live in a bubble. It's easy for us to not really want to get out of the bed or get off the couch because in my sanctuary or refuge, literally within my home, I can just kind of block all of that noise out to a degree. Unfortunately, our actions show what we really think of those that are around us because generally, if all is well in my life, we kind of have this uh, assumption that, well, everyone else must be doing well. Everyone else's life must be going pretty well, and that's certainly not the case. And this is why that we would hopefully live out our name as Mission Point, that we would be intentionally missional here and there, that we would want to be able to have an opportunity to minister to those who are around us, that we would not be found guilty of ignoring those who are in need 
as we see throughout all of the book of Amos. This fall, we're going to be launching up in our small groups, and we're going to have an opportunity, yes, to study the Word, but my hope is that what we've kind of begun and kind of see the kindling of this summer, of being intentionally missional, of ministering to people in our streets or going to the square and just doing different things, different opportunities that we've had over the summer, is that we would continue that, not just as individuals, but within those groups, so that we're engaging with more people, because that's the way in which not so much that we grow a church, but that we advance the kingdom is by engaging with more and more people. That even if you're the most shy of introverts, we still engage with people because we're called to minister to the people that are around us. And so we continue that. I, I can remember the first time when I got out of my kind of my bubble, uh, and, and this, not, this doesn't mean that you have to get on a plane to get out of your bubble, but sometimes it's just good to be able to get out of what's familiar and comfortable to you just to see maybe the other side of the tracks, if you will, or the other side of town or the other side of the state, just to see that there are other things that are going on than just what you're kind of familiar with. And I, I can remember the first time I was able to, to go on my first international mission trip. It, it transformed my life. I, I, I went to, to, to Russia in the summer of 2002, and it was one of those moments of where it was just one, it was a joy for me, yes, to be able to travel and to see and see a lot of similarities that these are people created in the image of God who have same uh, hopes and dreams and expectations, but also fears and struggles as anybody does in this world. But it allowed me just to see that, man, there, there's so much else going on outside of, of my realm and my bubble to where, yes, I want to engage with that bubble, but I also want to recognize that it's good for me to step outside of that from time to time because it does affect you, it does change you. And so this idea of complacency that God hates, the, the, the question might be, okay, he hates that, but, but so what? And the way that I kind of wanted to, to frame this is this idea of there's, hopefully with our country, uh, with our church, and us as individuals, is that we're, we're engaging with each of those with an intentionality and not a complacency. Because what happens is sometimes we just have this mindset of, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm going to, to do what I can, or I'm just going to kind of continue to live the life that I have. And we don't recognize that intentionality, if we're not focused on it, we, we fall into complacency. And complacency breeds an unhealthy lifestyle. It makes us unhealthy, not only physically, but also spiritually. We have this mindset or we have these statements that maybe these have come out of your mouth even the last, I don't know, three months, six months of, well, I'll get to that later, or it's fine. I'll take that to the Lord eventually. I'll, I'll share that with an accountability partner eventually. I'll eventually kind of get on board with the mission of God or maybe at the church level, the, the mission of the church. I'll eventually do this. I'll eventually do that. And there's this complacency, whereas what I see throughout Scripture is this desire to hear the Word of God and to obey the Word of God in an immediate response of, God, what do you have, what do you have to say? And so maybe as, as before we go into our next point is, is there an area of your life that you continue to kind of put off? Not, not to pick on our men, but just in different opportunities I've had to lead and lead in ministry with men, uh, I've had a lot of them who specifically with children or grandchildren who would say, well, I want to get to being the primary discipler of my son and my daughter, but I'm just not there yet. And they keep putting off and putting off and putting off. And that son or daughter keeps getting older and older and older. And it's like, quit having that, that complacency of self-satisfaction, of I think it's fine, even though you say you want to be that primary discipler, your actions dictate otherwise. 
I'll eventually get around to, to, to pouring into them. But often what would happen is a lot of these men, because we don't want to fail and pride is a thing, is they may know more than me. They may ask me a question I don't know. But that's not an excuse for us not to continue to teach and to lead that next generation. There might be complacency of, I'll get more involved with the things of the church or uh, the mission of the church or whatever it may be, but I need to get this settled, that settled. I need to get more financially stable. I need to get this taken care of. I need to get that taken care of. And we have a variety of things, and there comes a point where we just basically have to say, God, what would you have me do in spite of all the stuff that's going on that I could be obedient and be a part of your kingdom work? And even though it may tire me, even though it may wear me out, I want to be a part of that. I don't want to be complacent. I don't want to be found being complacent or, or, or lazy in any form or fashion. And before I go on, what we have to be careful with that is we like to swing the pendulum to one degree or the other. We like to say, well, I'm not going to be complacent, so I'm just going to go 110%, 24-7 all the time, and then you're just wearing yourself out and you're exhausted. That, that's not biblical either. But that's not what we're saying. It's not saying overwork yourself and become legalistic and look at me, look at me, look at what I do, look at what I know, look at all the things that I'm doing. It's no, no, no. There's a biblical balance of understanding that I'm going to be intentional, but I'm not just going to wear myself out to wear myself out of, hey, look at me. It's going to be, I'm going to be intentional, but I'm still going to enjoy this life that God has given me. I'm going to have moments of where I am going to smell the roses. I'm going to celebrate our victories. I'm going to enjoy this life, but I'm not going to be complacent. I want to be just a biblical center of not either extreme. And what I found is a lot of people go, well, if I was going to be one extreme, I'd rather not be complacent. I would rather be busy. And it's like, neither is acceptable. Both are sinful. Don't be the busy person. Don't be the complacent person. Be that biblical person that just wants to live an intentional life for the glory of God. Second point, God not only hates complacency, God hates pride. He hates pride. If you've been able to have uh, time to be able to study scripture, I think that's a, a point that you've heard, that you've read yourself, that he's mentioned several different times in scripture, but we see it here uh, s- specifically. We have another definition for you on pride, so that way we're on the same page. The definition of pride uh, from Merriam-Webster is inordinate self-esteem, delight or elation arising from some act, possession, or relationship, but inordinate self-esteem. Basically, you think so highly of yourself. You're kind of full of yourself. You're arrogant would be a synonym. Uh, You're conceited would be another synonym. Or you are just smug, which would be the other synonym. I I can, uh, as you you look uh, in verse 8, look at what it says. It says, The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared. I loathe, here it is, the arrogance, the pride, the conceit of Jacob. And detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all it contains. And it will be, if ten men are left in one house, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, Hey, is anyone else with you? And that one will say, No one. And then he will answer, Keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. How often do you hear the name of the Lord not to be mentioned in Scripture? For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. Uh, what you find is basically, again, this example of God does not care. He loathes, he detests pride. 
And what he wants to be able to articulate is that when uh, the judgment comes because of your arrogance, your pride, your complacency, your perversion of justice, all of the different things that he has presented as his case that they have been found guilty and wanting in all the previous chapters, is that when the judgment comes, it's going to be harsh and it's going to be difficult. People are going to lose their life and they're going to be people from other parts maybe specifically in the southern kingdom, who have family members, and they're going to be going into those homes and into the rubble, and they're going to be looking for survivors, and they will find none. It's, it's a very just harsh and just, just intense uh, few verses of God trying to explain and get their attention. Repent so that you may live. He goes on in verse 12. He says, do horses run on rocks? The answer is no. Or does one plow them with oxen? It's literally, uh, the translation in the Hebrew is not, or does one plow them with oxen? It's, or does one plow the sea with oxen, is what it literally means in the Hebrew. And obviously that would be no. If you've ever plowed anything, if you're going to plow the sea with oxen, one, those oxen are just going to just fall through the water, drown, and die, and you're not really going to do much good. What God is trying to do is give two extreme illustrations that are ridiculous of basically saying this, this just is an impossibility. And he goes on, verse 12, Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. What he's doing is he's using these extreme, ridiculous illustrations of a horse on rocks and plowing in the sea with two ox or with the oxen, and he's trying to make the point that the Israelites somehow are able to take justice and righteousness and pervert them. Two, if you will, elements that should have been these beautiful flavors that would help uh, enhance a society have somehow, you have now poisoned it. It's the idea of like you got some tea, and tea is just, no offense, tea is nasty, but you put a little sugar in there, it gets a little bit better. If you put a lot of sugar in there, then it's drinkable. And what you have is like, this should be what's going into the society to help make it flourish and thrive and have that, that flavor, but instead, somehow you've taken things like justice and righteousness, and you've twisted it so much with your pride and your arrogance that it's actually poison, it's wormwood. It's actually killing you and your nation. He says, the way that I put this, only a godless society could accomplish such impossible perversion. I was thinking about how to kind of illustrate this idea of, of pride and just twisting something. Um, so uh, my lawnmower at my house, uh, last year at some point, one of the little... Uh, uh, screws and bolts just kind of messed up. Uh, and so I was like, oh, well, I'll just kind of do what I need to do to make it work. And the other day I was, I think I was on the phone with my brother and I was talking before I was going to mow and I was getting the, the mower kind of all situated and ready to go and, and using my, uh, my, my tools and, and my bolt and nut to try to get this thing going. And what I began to do is, and what you don't know, is that the, the, the hole that I'm trying to put the bolt through is a little bit uh, too small for the bolt. And so what I would have to do sometimes is I have to kind of uh, hammer it or push it or twist it. And so finally what happened is over time, you hammer it, you twist it, you keep doing different things. Eventually uh, this time it just went snap. And I was like, that's not good. And I had to, to basically mow with one side of my handle uh, loose and one side not. And the, the arrogance of me was like, we're fine. 
We're all fine here. There's nothing to see here. We're going to be perfectly fine. But we have this pride or this arrogance of like, I can fix it. I'll take care of it. It's not a problem. I'm going to twist. I'm going to turn. I'm going to hammer. And in the end, what you do is you damage and you destroy. And you actually put yourself in a more dangerous situation than you were in before if you would just take the time to step back, evaluate the situation and go, you know what? There are those who are smarter than me at the hardware store, and they can help me find the appropriate bolt, and I could get this thing fixed, and no harm to me, and the yard will look even better because it's not loppy. And so what we do, and what the nation of Israel was doing was saying, "Mm, I like your idea, God, but I like my idea better. Because your idea, well, if we give you 10%, So that can be helped to be used to help those who are outcasts and weak and give to the poor. Um, If we do that, I don't have as much, and then I become poor. And I don't like that idea. And so I'm going to take what you think is a good idea, and I'm going to twist it and to be able to convince myself of, i got to take care of my family. Do you not want me to take care of my family, God? Like, what kind of God are you? I thought you were a loving God. And so you begin to twist and manipulate and pervert what he has had to say in order for you to be able to have your ease. And you become prideful enough to think that your ways are better than his ways. And God is having none of it because he sees all of it. And so maybe what area in your life, when it comes specifically to Scripture and to those that you see that are around you, that you live, work, and play with, that you're just kind of maybe pushing off to the side or you're ignoring because it's like, it's not my business. And we got to be careful with that. Look at verse 13 and 14. It says, you who rejoice in Lodbar, we'll come back to Lodbar, it's a fun name, and say, have we not by our own strength taken care, uh, excuse me, Karanim for ourselves? For behold, I am going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Araba. Human conquest is a big deal throughout all of history. And Israel was essentially bragging and boasting, and they would kind of have these moments of celebration, patting each other on the back of like, look at what we accomplished. We took down Lodbar, and what God is doing kind of tongue-in-cheek is kind of uh, going after them kind of with wordplay is because Lodbar literally means nothing. You conquered a city whose name is nothing. Like, congratulations. Good job. Uh, You have accomplished nothing because they were nothing. And then they like to boast and brag about how by their own strength they took care of, uh, I've just butchered this like three times, care Naim. And he's like, in the end, do you not recognize that any conquest that you have as a kingdom, as a nation, as an individual is because of the grace and the goodness of God? But you find it to be yourself. It goes back to this idea of like, God, look look what I'm accomplishing and you're asking me to do more. And it's this idea of, Do you realize that the air that you breathe is because of God? The ability for you to go to work and make that paycheck that maybe you're kind of like, oh, look how much I made, because God gave you the ability, the the, the mental faculties, the physical faculties to be able to accomplish that job. For us to be able to do anything, we have to come back again in humility, not pride, of it's by God and God alone that we're able to accomplish anything. God is the one who stands behind and above all the conquests, all the victories, and all the accomplishments, but it is so easy to become arrogant and prideful and trust in ourselves and say, look at what I have done or look at what we have done. And friends, it's easy for us as a country, as a church, and as individuals to do the exact same thing if we're not careful. 
It's not that we can't have moments of maybe where someone comes along and they say, man, you did a really good job whenever uh, I, I saw you love on this person or that. Take the compliment. Like that's, that's a fine thing that we see what each other is doing. But it's also just that innate understanding of, man, I'm just glad that I was able to be a part of that because it did feel good and there's nothing wrong with feeling good about doing good things and helping people. But recognize it's by the grace of God. But by the grace of God. Recently, we've been going through our study of Song of Solomon and on Thursday nights, and uh, oftentimes I've shared just different stories just to kind of uh, hopefully make it a little bit more relatable of my relationship with Tiffany, and um, apparently some of the things I kind of embellished, uh, uh, but that's what preachers do. Uh, and so one of the, one of the things that I, I found was I was like, man, am, am, am I boasting in our relationship? Uh, because I do think we have a good relationship. I love my wife. Um, I, I think our, our, our marriage is a wonderful marriage. And it is. Like, you could cross that line of like, ooh, look at me. Look at me. Or it could be, but by the grace of God alone, this is where we're at. This is the healthy marriage that we have. So if you have things in your life that are good and awesome, enjoy it, relish it, say, thank you, God. But by the grace of God, I can, I can make that wage, or I can accomplish this physical feat, or I, I, I do have, like, you've given me people who have mentored me to be able to do mechanical things or artistic things. I mean, those are just things that were just not given to me. And, and it's, it's, it's something that you have, and it's, it's, be appreciative and be thankful, but by the grace of God, this is what I have. And so, God hates and judges complacency and pride within me, and He does the same with you. It's interesting that the two things, the two items that we see in chapter 6 that God hates, complacency and pride, both of the definitions included the word self. I don't know if you noticed that, but that definitely jumped off the page at me. It had everything to do with self. When we become consumed with our own security and pleasures, God's judgment is going to consume. And so the questions are, are you complacent? Right now in your life, not six months ago, but right now, are you complacent? Are you unaware of the dangers that are around you because of your complacency, because you're not willing to see the things that are around you? And are you arrogant enough, prideful enough to think you don't need God? I've heard individuals say, I don't really want to go to God because I don't want to bother God. That's pride. That's not humility. That's a false humility. Because you're really saying, God, I got this. You're using the faux false humility of, I don't want to bother him, but really either you think you got it or you're scared of God. And either way, something is off. Something is way off. Every one of us needs God. As we close, the last thing that I wanted to show you is, again, as we started with this idea of fear, because I think this is where it needs to end in order for us to not be complacent and prideful, is that hopefully we worship, as I told you last week, worship is life. Hopefully we live life with an attitude of, of gratitude and also fear, both at the same time. And I just want to show you just three verses uh, from Scripture just to hopefully be a reminder. And so can we show that first one, Joshua 24, or chapter 4? Look at what it says. This is Joshua speaking. He says that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord, notice who he wants to give the credit to, that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Why? So that you may fear the Lord your God, not just today, but forever. They had just accomplished a great victory, and he's like, I want us to know now and forever that 
the Lord accomplished this and that we would fear him. Let's go to the next one, Psalm 111. We read this this morning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Sometimes this idea of fear is like, well, should I just be scared and kind of in the corner of like, God, don't hurt me, don't strike me down. It's like, no, 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 no. Because of the fear of the Lord and it gives you wisdom, it leads you to praise. It leads you to worship. When you appropriately see God and and know who he is because you see him fully. Let's look at the last one. There's so many others, but I just wanted to give you three. Psalm 68, 11. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim... That's not what I had. Sorry. (laughs) I gave the wrong verse to the person who does the slides. I apologize. Uh, Listen to this. It says, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I'll read it again. Teach me your way, O Lord, Yahweh. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That from, from the essence of who I am, just deep down, I want to fear your name. That when I hear your name, I tremble a little bit. Like I'm just like moved and in awe. But then at the same time, it's that beautiful phrase that we see multiple times. I want to fear him. Oh, but don't be afraid. You're like, how can it be both? It is. It just is. I fear him, but I'm going to be drawn to him. You've probably heard the the idea before, but the same is true for me. Uh, Growing up, uh, there's a a respect and an awe that I had for my, or I still have, he's, he's still living, for my dad as a child. But I also knew that when I got out of line, there was a, a, an appropriate fear that I had of my dad. Not because he was abusive, and certainly not because I thought he was going to be neglectful and just kind of ignore me, but I knew because he loved me, there might be times where he might discipline me. There are going to be moments in our life where we come to God, and he does. He seems just like that loving heavenly father because he is that just loves us and we mimic the words of jesus in the lord's prayer where we're not just saying father we're saying the most intimate of terms of of daddy and it's abba and it's just this sense of closeness of like he's just this dad to me but then there's those other moments where you have to realize he is but he is still god and 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 we don't want to lose sight or the bite of that as i started this I wrote this down. If you lose your fear of God, hear me, if you lose your fear of God, then you will fear everyone and everything else. You're like, I'm not afraid of anything and everything. If you lose your fear of God, if he is not that top priority person, other things are going to creep up into your life that you thought I would never be concerned with finances. I'll be honest, as a kid, never really bothered me. But as more and more responsibility gets heaped on you, it's like, man, what am I going to do about this bill? How am I going to be able to pay this mortgage? How are we going to move from Oklahoma to here? How is this going to work? And fear and anxiety and dread. And what happens? What happens when you take it to the Lord? Did you, did you all of a sudden get a check in the mail? No. What you got was perspective. And you saw that there was someone bigger than your bills. And there was someone bigger than your diagnosis. And there was someone bigger than your relationship problem. It didn't make it go away. It's not trivial. 
It's just you gain perspective because you went to the one who is greatest above all so that you could see in perspective these other things that they need to be dealt with. But I could either go through those financial woes, I could go through this health diagnosis on my own, or I could go through this relationship that's just a struggle and a strain by myself, or I could go through it with God. And I pray that we would choose to go through it with God. Because if we only fear God, if we would underfear, or if we would fear God and understand Him, then we have no fear of anything else. So the question is, what are you afraid of right now? Might be an odd question to have had asked that you weren't expecting this morning. But what are you afraid of right now? I, I, I hit on just a few, but is it a is it a health-related issue? Is it a relationship? Is it a financial issue? What are you afraid of? I would ask that this morning you would take it to the Lord and pray that he would give you perspective of just how much bigger he is than even that, yes, very important thing that's troubling your soul and your spirit. But go to the Lord. Not that you have the genie in the bottle of, well, I went to the Lord, so now it's fixed. It's, no, 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 no. As we talked about last week, when I go to the Lord, he may not change my circumstances, but he changes me. He changes me. And so if you would, with your head bowed, with your eyes closed, I just want to pray for you. And then I want to give you just some time before we sing to have just a few moments, just like we did last week, like just a minute of just talking to God and bringing to God what you fear. One of the best ways in which to experience freedom and release from that which you fear is to recognize it and take it to the Lord. So Father, I pray in Jesus' name that every single one of us, we all have things that frighten us, the unknown, the future, the list goes on and on, Lord. I pray for every individual that they would just take a moment to be honest enough to identify it in their, in their mind's eye, write it down on a piece of paper, whether it be in their mind, big or small, and that they would bring it to you. So if you would just take, a, take about a minute Identify and take the thing or things that you are just wrestling with, frightened of right now, and take it to the Lord. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I don't have this in my notes, but I looked over and was reminded of what we're about to sing. We're going to sing a song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. 
may be familiar to some of you, maybe not to others, but it's a beautiful, beautiful hymn. In just a moment, I hope and pray that that could be your prayer, that I'm going to turn my eyes upon him in spite of this thing that is just giving me anxiety or depression or fear. I'm going to turn my eyes upon Jesus and gain a proper perspective. But before we go, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, what I just want to ask is, I don't even know what it will be because we can't talk right now, but I wonder if there might be some of you right now who would just say, Pastor, I can't tell you, but there's something in my life. I'm just asking that you would pray for me. That you would just pray. There's, there's something in my life that I'm confessing, I'm recognizing, I'm identifying, and I would just appreciate to know that someone else is just interceding on my behalf because it's a lot and it's heavy, whether big or small. If that's you and you're just like, man, I, could, I would appreciate just knowing that you're praying for me, would you just slip up your hand? I'd be more than happy to pray for you over the course of this next week and on into the future. Is there something in your life right now that you're just like, Pastor, I could just use some, some special prayer? If that's you, just slip your hand up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Anybody else? Pray for me. Absolutely. Anybody else? Don't let pride get in your way of not saying, don't pray for me. I got this. Do you need prayer? Would you say, pray for me? All right. Father, I pray that as we come and we turn our eyes upon Jesus in song, but also hopefully with our heart, that we could walk away today emboldened and encouraged that the awesome, fearful God of heaven above allows us to come to his throne of mercy and grace openly. Because as much as you are a fearful, awesome God, oh, you are a sweet, loving, heavenly Father. May we come into your presence with joy. In Jesus.